we need not prove the point that opposition against Christianity is increasing. I think we all know that as Christians trying to be faithful in 2022 in this increasingly hostile environment to those who would worship our Lord Jesus Christ exclusively. Opposition against Christianity is increasing globally. Not just persecution, you know, you get the world map of where the persecution is taking place, the ten, the ten countries on the top list that we pray for, uh, Korea and India with its militant Hinduism and China, of course, increasing as well. Not just persecution globally, but also opposition even here in the West, a once Christian nation here in America and also Canada. More subtle, perhaps, but we feel it. We felt it during COVID. COVID wasn't the cause. COVID was the occasion, and it's intensifying, and we know it. We know it in our hearts. We feel it. We see it in society. Now, in Acts chapter 4 that we read together already this evening, brothers and sisters, we, we see actually the first account, the first account of public opposition by government authorities against the faithful gospel witness of the post-Pentecost church. In chapter 3, there was wonderful preaching. Chapter 2, chapter 3, a miracle that was done. That was the occasion for, for preaching that led to revival. 5,000 souls is no small number. And then in chapter 4, the authorities called Peter and John, and they, they threatened them as we read together. Peter made a very bold statement in chapter, verse 12 that we didn't read. There is no other name under heaven, Jesus Christ, an exclusive Savior. And then the response, the response was imprisonment and intimidation. And this begins the, the start of a long history, a long history of persecution and opposition to gospel witness of the New Testament church, a story really that's parallel to the expansion, the missionary expansion of the church from the day of Pentecost. And so I want to study this passage with you this evening, Acts chapter 4, particularly verses 23 through 31, Acts 4, verse 23 through 31. I want to study this passage with you to learn lessons from this inspired history for us today as Christians who are starting to feel here in the West an increasing amount of opposition to gospel witness. Verse 29 and 31, I'll just read that with you now. Verse 29, and now, Lord, the disciples prayed, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. And then verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Our theme this evening, persecution, prayer, and Pentecost continued. Now, what is the place of this narrative, this history that we find recorded by Luke in the book of Acts? Well, it's historical genre. It's a, it's a story, a history of events that took place and an inspired account of the, the acts of the apostles, or rather the acts of Christ, through the apostles in the early church. And it's the start of their mission that began there and greatly expanded with the Lord's blessing. It's, it's shortly after this one-time event, this unique event in the history of redemption, uh, Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit after the risen Christ had ascended and seated in the position of, of authority, sends His Spirit 50 days after the resurrection. Pentecost, this unique period of redemptive history, this transition really from Old Testament anticipation to New Testament mission. And the recent events as well, blessing, great blessing on the preaching of these fishermen and others, this motley band of disciples that are now apostles, empowered by the Holy Spirit of Pentecost, 
preaching in Acts 3, like I said, 5,000 added to the church in one day. What, a, what an amazing thing that would be if we would see that in our church, our churches these days. Peter's sermon in Acts 2, Acts 3, Peter and John then in prison, like I said, by the Jewish leaders, examined by the council and Peter's bold witness there to the council, verse 21. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing that they might punish them, how they pu- might punish them because of the people. For all men glorify God for that which was done. This is the lead-up, the context of this, this inspired history. And so verse 23 begins the passage we're looking at this evening. Verse 23, And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. After they were threatened, Kind of like a, a gathering like this. We haven't been together for a while. Uh, many of us separated because of COVID. And we're going to be comparing notes the next few days and ex- sharing our experiences. Also some of the tension, some of the opposition that we experienced through, through COVID and some of the challenges in different regions. And we'll be sharing with each other and, and praying for each other as we have been in the various email documents, some of the leaders here. And in the, in the church, we come together every Sunday for that same camaraderie, that fellowship, that, that uniqueness that belongs to us as Christians the oneness that we have in Christ and the sharing of our burdens and our, and our challenges and our trials. And that's what these believers did too. They were threatened. They were threatened harshly, it says, and they come together and they report what happens. They share their experiences of what they had been through, the harsh threats made by the authorities, just like Jesus had been threatened. And now they themselves experiencing the same thing. Maybe they said, did we do the right thing? When we said to the council, whether it's right in the sight of God to obey you or to, to, obey, to obey God. Did we do the right thing, brothers? Were we, were we in the right place? Did we, did we have the right tone? Were we, that they, were, they were sharing. They were sharing. They were reporting all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So we see two facts here right away. Come to the surface as Luke tells us this story. Two facts. Believers united together discussing their experiences. And then the second fact, increasing opposition against faithful gospel witness. And we find ourselves today in a similar circumstances, do we not? Increasing opposition against Christianity. The history of persecution continues. The dragon continues to try to devour the woman. And there's been a long line of faithful preachers, faithful martyrs, faithful Christians who have faithfully witnessed of their Lord, who have lifted up the name of Jesus, who have held Him high, even if it meant their own death and their own destruction. And now we see it again. We feel it in the West. We, we, we hear, we hear the, the opposition, the threats, the, the nuances, the, 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 the insults, not just persecution like I said globally, but we, we feel it coming to our own communities today. Take heed. There is an often subtle but very serious and growing unity of opposition against the church, against the church of Christ, not against Islam, not against secular humanism, not against any other ideology, communism, socialism, whatever ideology is a favorite, but against Christianity. And as we read the news, it becomes very clear to us. Why does the Holy Spirit give us this account? Why does He give us here t- today, why does He give us Acts chapter 4, this story, this inspired history? He, he does it to tell the record of what Christ was doing through His church long ago. He does it to, to, to record the facts and this history, yes, but so much more than that too. He does it to comfort the church, to comfort us when we are beginning to face opposition. He does it to teach us important spiritual lessons. That's why the Holy Spirit has given us these words. And that's what we should bear in mind as we, as we in, stu- uh, study them together. And as we are motivated by these disciples to be faithful in our witness. So let's continue to study this passage. First, the church's prayer. 
And then the Lord's answer to this prayer, and then I'll draw some lessons from that as well. How did the believers respond to opposition, the opposition they faced by the authorities? Verse 24, they responded with prayer. Together in unity, with one accord, they lifted up their voices and they responded in prayer. Now, we have to see Luke's emphasis here, the unity, the unity, the the markers, the indicators of unity that we see in Acts chapter 1, the 120 gathered in the upper room, Acts chapter 2, the gathering at, at Pentecost when the time was right. And again now, we see this, this, the same language here of, of unity with one accord together. Together they're united in telling the Lord the challenges that they're facing, the opposition, and the increasing threats to their witness. And the prayer actually has two parts. If you study these verses, and we're just going to touch on them, verses 24 through 30. Actually, the first couple of verses, 23. 4 through 28 is the confession, and then in verses 29 is the supplication of their prayer, a confession of faith and a supplication in faith. And we see, first of all, the person, the, 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 the name they use in their address to God. Their prayer is addressed to the Lord. Verse 24, Lord, Thou art God. Actually, it can be translated Sovereign Lord or the Lord God. Uh, the idea there is on God's sovereignty, His oneness, His, His incomparability. They address their prayer not to the level of the authorities. They address their prayer to the highest power, the Lord God, identifying the Lord whom they worship, the God who has complete ownership over the entire universe, the God of supreme authority and majesty and, and power. All the other powers that they speak of in their prayer, Pontius Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles and also the Jewish leaders that had just threatened them, they're at, they're at a human level, but they address their prayers to the higher throne, the highest power, the Lord God, and they declare their faith, their allegiance to this God. They confess their trust in His sovereign control. Look at verse 28 to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. God was in total control as Christ was led to the cross, as He endured hellish agony, as He hung there suffering, as He was mocked and insulted. Come down if you are the Christ. God was in total control. Sovereign Lord, above it all, who planned these things beforehand. God's sovereignty is such a comfort It's such a comfort when we are facing challenges and opposition within and without. It's such a comfort. And these believers find this same comfort. The sovereign Lord who guided all events when Christ was threatened and killed is now so also directing all things as they themselves are being threatened and will soon be killed. He is in total control. That's where their prayer begins, confessing their confidence in God's total control. But they continue. In fact, as we read their prayer, it's unavoidable. It's so so clear, isn't it? They're quoting Psalm 2. Psalm 2, as you read this, you know it's Psalm 2. Clearly, they were reading their Bibles, and clearly, uh, it's Psalm 2 they're quoting. Why? Why? Why did they go to the Psalms? Why did they go to Psalm 2 of all the Psalms? Because you see, as they're trying to understand current events, this new twist, this new turn, opposition, persecution, soon murder, actually Stephen and then James and others, as they're trying to understand this, this experience of theirs that is not pleasant, they turn to Scripture. They turn to Scripture. They view human history and current events in the light of Scripture. 
it's not just an academic exercise of exegeting a psalm of David. This is a faith. They're placing themselves in the context, the worldview that Psalm 2 gives us. What had happened to the Christ, the Messiah, had already been prophesied in Psalm 2, and they clearly see it. They see how the kings and the rulers had all united themselves against the Lord and against His Christ. The believers are very well, very well aware that they have witnessed the fulfillment, at least the partial fulfillment, of Psalm 2, and that gives them comfort as well. And now, as they themselves are being threatened, they interpret the opposition not against themselves personally, but in this framework, this worldview of the bigger picture, God's picture, what God is doing, His plan from before the foundation of the world. They locate this opposition, this persecution, their experiences in the light of God's bigger plan and bigger mission. The rage of the nations, the opposition of the rulers, the wrath of the dragon. What had happened to them that very day in Acts 4 was simply a continuation of the global scene, the nations raging against the Christ, the Anointed One. It was all made clear to them in the light of Scripture. And so, with that in view then, in that context, or on that foundation really, the foundation of Scripture that illumines even current events and helps them interpret them, they then make their supplication, verses 29 and 30. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were in their shoes if you had just been released from spending a night in prison, if you had just been threatened by the highest authorities of that region not to speak again in the name of Jesus, what would you pray for? What were we praying for in the last couple of years as we experienced a bit of turbulence that no doubt will get worse? This is not an academic question, is it? It's not a theoretical possibility to debate in the classroom. What would you do in such a situation, the ethics thereof? This is a serious matter, a real possibility for us as well today, isn't it? Threatened to no more speak in the name of the one and only triune God and His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior, the exclusive Savior that excludes all others and that says all others are going to hell unless they confess this Christ. What would you pray for? Safety? Peace? Protection against harm and danger? That's, that's human. That's natural, isn't it? That's the first thing that comes to our minds, I'm, I'm sure. Freedom from opposition? Freedom from persecution? That seems natural as well. Or perhaps favor in the eyes of the officials. Lord, give us favor in the eyes of an official so that we can continue doing our thing. It's not what they prayed for. Verse 29, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. The very thing they were commanded not to do, they prayed to do better with more boldness. And their prayer is an echo, actually, of Hezekiah's prayer when Sennacherib came against him. Isaiah 37, verse 16 and 17. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwellest between the cherubim, thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. Incline thine ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which, which hath sent to reproach the living God." As the church has always been praying in times of opposition 
these believers continued to pray to the Sovereign Lord, the one above all powers, to grant them boldness to witness of Christ. They plead their case to the sovereign judge of all the earth. They beg for boldness to speak God's word with clarity and passion and love. And they expect God to continue working through them, doing wonders, spiritually healing thousands. They're not concerned for their own safety. That wasn't, that wasn't on their minds, it seems, almost, from when we read their prayers. It was about mission. It was about the witness of the gospel. It was about the, the advance of Christ's kingdom. It was about His church, the salvation of sinners, preaching that Christ is alive, that there is hope now, there is, there is joy, there is rejoicing, not just for Israel, but for the nations. The message had to go forth. Jewish leaders or no Jewish leaders, the the truth needed to be told. They're not concerned for their own safety. Their desire is to declare God's glory among the nations. And they rejoice for the privilege to suffer for the name of Christ as they did so. Chapter 5. And even the balance of their prayer. There's a beautiful balance there. Verse 29 and 30. Behold their threatenings, grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thy hand to heal, and that signs may be done. There's a balance here. They were going to continue preaching, and they were expecting God to continue working. After all, God had just saved 5,000, didn't he? They were ready for the next 5,000. The next 20,000, why not? Because their job was to preach, and they were praying for boldness to do so. And they were expecting God to continue to stretch forth His hand and heal with signs and wonders done in the name of Jesus. Our job is to be faithful in the witness of Christ. And we trust that God, in His own way, in His own time, will save sinners that He will do great things, that His wonders will be made known among the nations. They don't demand God to do miracles. They don't tell Him, as some would have it, but they know He can. And they know He will, in His own time, in His own way, advance the cause of His Christ, the Messiah, for He has promised. What is our response, friends, as we also experience an increase of opposition to the gospel? How shall we respond to current events in our world today? Here in the West, this once Christian nation of America and Canada, not much different. How shall we respond? Well, we see around us the kingdoms of the world are shaking. The whole Society, global society is in turmoil. The bloody clash of civilizations, the, 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 the uprooting of ideologies. Postmodernism is self-destructing and it's, it's going to recreate itself and the, and the new version will not be better than the old. Communism, perhaps it will collapse under the weight of its own demise but be reconfigured into something probably worse. And then we see militant Hinduism and militant Islam. They're forced into militancy because otherwise they'll be overrun by this globalist humanism. The kingdoms of the world are shaking. The whole world is is like tectonic plates shifting and grinding together. And in the midst of it all, the opposition to Christ and His truth is increasing. Growing intolerance for the exclusive witness of Christ. There's not just an increase of non-Christians in our country or an increase of post-Christians in Canada. No, there's a a growing number of anti-Christians and a new militancy 
here in North America. You know, you hear accounts of people being unbaptized. You know, not just not the baptisms, we know that, right? But the unbaptisms, the unbaptism ceremonies. There's an anti-Christianity. It's not just putting the past, oh yeah, I grew up that way. No, no, it's a, there's a hatred, there's an animosity. There's a, there's a, what is it? Well, it's the evil one. It's the evil one at work, certainly. How do we, how do we live in this world where globalist humanism is raging against the Lord and against His anointed? What is our reaction? Or rather, what was the reaction of these believers in Acts chapter 4? Was it characterized by fear or by faith? John Calvin writes, he says, this example teaches us what to do when threatened by our enemies. We must not laugh off danger, but rather the fear of danger should drive us to seek help from God. This comforts us and stops us from being frightened into no action at all. We could respond in fear as we see these dark clouds on the horizon, as we, as we, as we taste the, the animosity and hatred. We could circle the wagons and, and form closer circles in our holy huddle, rescue ourselves from out there and reassure ourselves that everything within is okay, that the protected walls of the church will keep us safe from the evils out there. We could build higher walls and stronger fortresses against the world and live as prisoners in our own palace. We can live in fear. But that's not how these believers responded. And that's, I think, not how the Holy Spirit wants us to respond to the present circumstance either. We must. We are called to respond in faith, to confess God's sovereignty. Not just a God among the others, not just God generic, but the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior. There is no other name by which we may be saved. Everything is happening according to His perfect plan. He sees the opposition. He hears the threats. He knows. And we pray for grace O God, please stretch forth thine hand to heal. O God, work in us faith. Work through us boldness so that we may continue to witness of thy truth. Work in our churches. Strengthen our people. Make us firmly grounded in Scripture, the rock Christ Jesus. Build us, establish us as in this most holy faith. Give us faith, not fear. Give us boldness and courage. And help us with faith to expect great things from our sovereign God. That was their prayer. That was the prayer of these believers. How did the Lord respond? Verse 31 an immediate answer to their prayer. God doesn't always respond that way. He doesn't have to respond that way. He's sovereign. After all, he's very sovereign. But he did respond that way then. And he may respond that way when we pray again. And that gives us hope, doesn't it? Look at how he responded, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness. Notice the unity again. When they had prayed together, the place where they were assembled together, the unity, the one accordness. Notice also the supernatural divine presence, the shaking of the place. Notice also the filling of the Holy Spirit. Notice these are the exact same evidences that we see in chapter 2. Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost, that one-time unique event, had, had fully come, the same evidences. Well, the ancillary evidences of the tongues of fire, that, that's secondary. But the unity and the divine presence and the Spirit's filling, 
We see the same evidences, don't we? We see here a continuation in part of Pentecost. Luke is making a clear allusion, I think, to Acts chapter 2 here. Not the miracle of the languages, but the filling of the Spirit, the essential, the primary evidence of Pentecost. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit filled them. And the same outcome as well. The bold proclamation of Christ the risen Savior. Now, the place was shaken, and, and, and was it an earthquake? Did the ground actually move? Was it, was it literal, physical? Or is it more figurative, symbolic, like it was an earth-shaking event, um, just like the kingdoms of the world are, are being shaken? Some have made something of this. John Chrysostom actually says the place being shaken made them more unshaken to preach the gospel. I, I think we, we don't need to be distracted, though, by this supernatural phenomena that took place at that time because that's really the ancillary. That's the secondary. That's not as important as the outcome. What really was happening here? It's, it's the focus of Luke, the filling of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit filled them. He strengthened their faith. He empowered them. He reassured them by His presence so that they would continue to worship. How did the Holy Spirit strengthen and motivate them? Well, verse 31, see, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. As it had happened in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, so it happened now in chapter 4 of Acts. And so it happened in Acts 9, verse 17. And in Acts 11, verse 15, And in Acts 13, verse 52. And in Acts 19, verse 6. And it continues. The filling of the Spirit. How do we understand this, this filling of the Holy Spirit? Well, it was something that happened to them. In fact, it's a passive verb here. Let's not overlook that fact. Many of my charismatic friends get that wrong. They were filled. It's something that happened to them. They didn't somehow conjure up uh, something to make God come down to them or didn't push the right buttons or say the right words or do the right things. No, the sovereign spirit chose in his own wisdom and sovereignty to fill them. And they were filled in a special way. His presence was felt among them. I think maybe the best way to explain this is, is from the Old Testament. When we see the the tabernacle in the wilderness and later the temple as well, when the tabernacle was erected and when everything was done according to plan and when Moses had had fulfilled everything with with the whole team that was constructing this, this place of worship, then the Lord came down. The Shekinah cloud of His glory filled the place. And His presence was seen in a real way. He filled the tabernacle. And now these believers are filled in the same way by the Spirit of God, in a special way, the glory cloud, God Himself, the Spirit of Christ with them in a special way. Of course, He was already with them. As they believed, they received the Spirit, but He was with them in a special way. These special times when God's presence is felt and experienced by believers for the task to which God has called them to speak of Christ, to witness the grandmother speaking to her grandchild about, about Christ, the things of the Lord, or, or the coworker that just needs to know the gospel, and you feel that God is with you as you share the gospel with your coworker. Special times when God's presence is experienced in a special way, empowerment for witnessing of Christ, for building up the body of Christ. Not the same as receiving the Spirit as we receive Him when we believe, the washing of the Spirit and regeneration, but something special that took place then for the bold proclamation of the Word. Many, Many Reformed theologians have called this unction. Unction, the unction of the Spirit, the anointing for the preaching of His Word for ministers, but also for all believers as they witness of Christ. John MacArthur says, being filled with the Holy Spirit is living in the conscious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, letting His mind, through the Word, dominate everything that is thought and done. 
And what was the result of God's empowering presence among these believers? They continued to witness of Christ. Verse 31, at the end, they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Boldness. I haven't touched on that word yet. It's a very important word here in this passage. Boldness, courage, confidence, freedom in speech, assured witness, boldness. Not impudence or presumptuous, not contemptuous or, or proud. No, that, that's, that's a distraction. That's, that's, that's us. That's human. But boldness. Courage, spiritual courage in the face of opposition. Confidence, strong confidence, even though you're trembling, humanly speaking. Assured witness of Christ to the co-worker or the colleague or the grandchild or to to those people that have caused us so much trouble. Like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the boldness here that these disciples experienced. Boldness. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit, spiritual boldness. It's the unction, His empowering presence that comes upon us, not of ourselves, gives us courage to do what is right and true and good. And it's a key word in this chapter, actually, if you, if you Google search it on this chapter. Verse 13, the Jewish leaders marveled when they saw the boldness of these, these fishermen, Peter and John. And they said, ah, they were with Jesus. Because you see, Jesus had the same boldness, the Spirit filled him without measure, and so he exhibits this spiritual boldness to speak with authority. He didn't speak like the scribes and the, and the Pharisees. He spoke with authority, the authority of the Spirit and the Word. And, and then the Jewish council see Peter and John, and they say, ah, they've been with Jesus. They have the same boldness, verse 13. Verse 29, they prayed for this boldness. They realized they needed it, and certainly we do too. And verse 31, the Spirit filled them again, and there it is. They were given boldness, this spiritual gift. It's interesting. This is an important word for Luke. He starts with it in Acts chapter 2, verse 29, as he describes Peter's preaching Pentecost. And the last verses of the book of Acts says that Paul declared the word with all boldness. Because this characterizes the era of the, of the apostles empowered by the Spirit to perform the mission that they had been given, boldness. Now, brothers and sisters, we need this boldness, don't we? We often feel so inferior, so weak, so timid and um, shy and afraid. Fear. That's what it is. It's fear, isn't it? It's fear. It's not faith. It's fear. We need this boldness. We're paralyzed sometimes with the lack of courage to do the right thing. We, we, we are overwhelmed with a sense of incompetence or inability or opposition growing, increasing opposition. It's paralyzing. We need this spiritual gift, boldness, to preach Christ, to speak of Christ, to share the glorious riches of the Savior with others. We need boldness. We need the Spirit's filling again and again and again as we're called to to live in a world full of opposition, to have the mind of Christ to think God's thoughts after him, and to do his deeds of compassion and mercy and love for sinners, to chase after sinners 
with the truth of the gospel of Christ. We need this boldness. And God's Spirit gives boldness. It's His gift, a spiritual gift, when He fills us to witness of Christ. One more thing there from verse 31. We can't overlook this. Verse 31, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. All. Every single one of them were filled with the Spirit and His boldness. Do you think Thomas was there? Doubting Thomas? You know Doubting Thomas? Remember him. I want to I put my finger in those holes. I, I won't believe until I see it with my eyes. Do you think Thomas was there? If he was, then he also was filled with boldness to speak the word of Christ. You say, but I, no, it's not me. I'm not called to that. I'm not called to speak about Jesus to others. That's, we, we outsource that to the missionaries. Not so. They all were filled with the Holy Spirit. They all spoke of Christ. And even Thomas. Maybe that's why he went to India and on, even to China, some, some historians say. And all of them, they all went. They all went out proclaiming Christ with boldness. And the Spirit owned the Word, and He sovereignly worked revival again and again and again. So Pentecost continued that day, and it still continues throughout church history. Not necessarily the ancillary phenomena, the signs and the wonders and the other things. Many are distracted by these things, but certainly the evidence of the filling of the Spirit and the bold proclamation, the lifting up of King Jesus, that continues. And revival and reformation continues. It continues. What are the spiritual benefits? What does this give us for today? Well, this was a unique event, yes. And yet, we also need the same boldness. And so we pray expectantly that our Sovereign Lord will also give us the same filling of the same Spirit of Christ who is still present among us in His church. Our Sovereign Lord has often answered this prayer. In fact, it was Christ Himself who told us to pray this. He said, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Spirit to them that ask Him? Pray to be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine or all the ideologies of the world. Don't be intoxicated by what the world says and the worldviews of the thinking of ungodly men, but be filled with the Spirit. And speak of Christ with boldness, especially now as gospel opposition is increasing. Now, I want to draw a few lessons, just a few lessons in conclusion, but first let's sing together from Psalter 4. Psalter 4, the first three verses from Psalm 2.
So we've seen persecution continuing. We've seen prayer continuing. We've seen Pentecost continuing. Now let's just draw a few concluding lessons from this passage as we conclude our meditations thereupon. The first lesson is this. Look again at this passage and and consider carefully. There are two types of unity in this passage. Two types of unity in this passage. First, we see unity in worship of our sovereign God in Christ. Unity of worship of Christ. Verse 24, believers joined together with one accord, many with a single voice. And then again, verse 31, at the end of this passage, the believers were gathered together in one place, the language there of Pentecost. This unity, this united worship. But then also, Verse 26 and verse 27, we see a unity of opposition against God's Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 26, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, quoting from Psalm 2. And then verse 27, the rulers were gathered together against Jesus, interpreting current events. Two types of unity in this passage, unity of the worship of the triune God and unity of opposition against Christ. World history is a story of the conflict between these two unities. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. God's congregation called out, called into holy fellowship and the rebellious heathen, running in every direction away from the Lord. And we see it today too, don't we? The polarization is becoming more obvious in our world today. Not the secular level polarization, Democrats versus Republicans, liberals versus conservatives, Russia against the West. No, no, it's, that's just surface. That's so surface. There's something so much deeper here. A division much deeper from the dawn of time. The nations are raging against the Lord and against His anointed. The serpent, the dragon, is trying to destroy the church. He tried to destroy the Christ child, but the Christ child was caught up into heaven, Revelation 12. And now the dragon is chasing the the church into the wilderness for a time and times and half a time for this period, this New Testament period, when mission must continue and the gospel must be proclaimed. Two types of unity. What side are you on? What side are we on? Show your colors, my friends. Declare your allegiance. Whose side are you on? Take a stand. Speak the truth. Don't halt between two opinions. Don't be double-minded as we face the opposition. What side are we on? Opposition is growing. Persecution, is it coming to America, to Canada? Probably. There are not three sides. There is not the church and the world and the serious-minded people in the church. There's two sides. Which side are you on? Kiss the sun. Bow before King Jesus. He is our Lord, King Jesus, on the throne of glory, with all power, as we've sung together now from Psalm 2. That is my Lord. His, he is my King. My sword is His sword. I swear my allegiance to Him and no other. Kiss the Son. Or else you will soon be destroyed by His rod of iron. 
He's coming. The king is returning, and he'll destroy all opposition with a rod of iron. And we rejoice to know that he's coming. And all opposition, all those who lift their fists against King Jesus, all those who despise the holy child, all those who use his name in vain, blaspheme him, all those who hate him will be destroyed in the lake of fire because God is just. But there's yet time. Now is the day of salvation. Kiss the sun. It's easy to fall prey to the temptation of mediocrity, cowardice, duplicity, fear, the holy huddle, protecting ourselves from the things out there. But rather, we should pray in humble dependence and learn to follow King Jesus with courage and boldness. That's lesson one. Number two, understand current events from God's perspective, I've touched on this already. I'll be brief now here. But that's where the believers found their comfort, didn't they? As they interpreted the threatenings, the imprisonment, the marginalization, and the, the insults, they interpreted in light of Scripture, and they found comfort. And we do the same. This is not about the West against Russia. That's not what the issue is in the world today. It's the nations raging against Christ. It's Satan's lie being promoted. It's God himself shaking the nations as the gospel is being preached. The world is turned upside down. The seed of the woman has crushed Satan's head, and now the darkness is raging against the light. Satan's antithesis against God's eternal truth. And Satan will soon be released for a little season, and it will get much worse, it seems, if I understand Revelation correctly. But Christ is coming again. He's coming soon, and He'll destroy all opposition. That gives us hope. We find so much comfort in our sovereign Lord who sits on the throne, our Jesus, our head, our King, who is above it all, and He's coming again. Luke writes this to comfort us as we begin to face opposition. As we try to understand current events, the news, we rest in this truth. We rest in this truth. We may be oppressed by the authorities. We may be suppressed by society, but we worship the highest power, and He is also the final judge. Lesson three, expect opposition against bold witness. Expect opposition. Gospel suffering is the norm in church history. The period we've lived in in the last 50, 100 years, 200 years in North America, it's the exception. Gospel suffering is the norm. And by gospel suffering, I don't mean Suffering because of our own pride, our own incompetence, or our own stubbornness, our own unlovingness, unloveliness, our own sins. P- Peter actually defines it quite nicely there in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. We don't suffer for wrongdoings, but we suffer for following Christ. Gospel suffering. When we follow Christ and we're insulted for it, ah, then we're following Christ because that's the way the Master went. We are in His footsteps then, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. And then again, 1 Peter chapter 4, let me, I'll just read it. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. That's the filling of the Spirit. Peter is alluding here to his experience many years prior to that at Pentecost. The Spirit of glory and of God rests upon us as we follow in the footsteps of Christ in the way of suffering for the sake of the gospel. So don't be surprised by suffering. In His wisdom, God allows it for a, for a little while, for our own good even, and certainly for the good of the gospel. Do not lust for safety 
and security. Lust for freedom, as if somehow we are made just to be happy here on earth. Pray rather for boldness to preach the exclusive message of Christ. And let the present opposition increase our faith. Will I, will you be faithful in the hour of trial? I don't know. My faith, our faith is so weak at times. We, we feel that the inconsistencies and the trembling and the lack of courage. But Christ has promised to fill us with his spirit for such times. Do you believe Christ's promise? Do you believe Christ's promise? Do I believe it? Then go forth and preach with boldness. And that's the fourth lesson, very briefly. Expect our God to do great things. That's what these believers were doing in verse 30. Stretch out thine hand to heal. We're going to preach. Lord, you please, thou, thou can stretch forth thy hand to heal if, if thou choosest to do so. That signs and wonders, great things, the great things that God has done, declare these deeds among the nations, these signs and wonders of the gospel. Sinners saved, saints lifted, made to follow Christ. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. I don't have time, but this, this verse 30 is actually an echo of Acts chapter 2, verse 8, where the sovereign Lord says to his own Christ, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And so we ask by faith. And then finally, the final lesson Pray in humility to witness of Christ with boldness. Pray in humility. That's what we see in these believers, their humble posture in prayer. When their circumstances drove them to prayer, their hearts were lifted up, overflowing with Scripture and with confession and with prayer to preach Christ with boldness. So let us pray in humility for the same courage with great anticipation of what our sovereign Lord will do through his church. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we confess our weakness of faith, our disunity and even the divisions and the distractions that so quickly lead us away from thy word. And this simple faith in thy promise. But we also confess our desire to be wholly dependent upon thee, to cast ourselves upon thee again, and to trust thee to honor thy promise to give us courage to witness of Christ, even as the opposition increases. Father, we see, we fear what the future might have for us, for our children. But the promise is for us and for our children. And for many who are far off, even as persecution continues and united rebellion increases, it seems, we look to Thee, O Lord, for courage. Fill us, we pray, with Thy Spirit again. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thy own sake, O my God. So that thy name may be glorified in all the earth, and so that the nations may know that thou art God. Amen. We conclude our worship together by singing. Psalter 407, Psalm 149, all four, all four verses.